Well, good morning, everybody. Um, my name's Jeff. I'm the assistant pastor around here, and uh, every so often, um, Joe says to us after staff meeting, I need to have a conversation with you in my office. And really, it's just about like figuring out when to preach. But I am really excited to have the opportunity and glad to be continuing in the series we're in called There I Said It. And um, I, I didn't think about this at the time, but I got handed a two-holiday week today. Um, because today is Super Bowl Sunday, and that's a holiday for some of us. And then, of course, Valentine's Day is on Tuesday, and some of us love it, some of us hate it. But that being said, it's a big week because it's a holiday week. And um, so, first of all, before we, before we get into it, uh, guys, if you haven't made your Valentine's Day plans yet, I have news for you. Um, if you go online to try to make a reservation, everything is booked, okay, uh, unless you want to go get dinner at like four o'clock or something like that. Um, I saw White Castle had a couple openings, but it's like, don't take your girl to White Castle unless she's really into White Castle, in which case, go ahead, you know, teach their own. But um, in, in light of Valentine's Day this week, um, there's a place for us to talk about uh, marriage, just a little tiny bit. And uh, I want to go with you to one of the most romantic heartwarming passages in all of the Bible, oft quoted at weddings. People love it. Um, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. That's a joke, and you'll see why in a second. Uh, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. It's going to pop up on the screen for you if you don't have your Bible or Bible app handy. Uh, but Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 27, this is what Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless." Okay, now here's the deal. Sometimes scripture can be a bit like a chisel or like a scalpel. In the wrong hands, it can make an absolute disaster. I can chuck a chisel at you and it's going to hurt you. I can stab you with a chisel and that's going to hurt you. And sometimes that's exactly what happens with this passage. But that happens because we sometimes don't know how to read our Bibles. We, we don't take our cues from the context in which something's written. Um, we, we, don't, we, we just choose to hone in on one aspect or one phrase or one set of words in a passage instead of understanding the whole entire context, who was being written to, what was going on in their culture, what does it actually say about itself. You know, around here we say, what does the Bible say about what the Bible says? And so um, we need to think a little bit more critically because a chisel or a scalpel can also do some amazing things. You can make some, create, some, some amazing uh, art with a chisel and a hammer if you're good at that kind of thing. Um, doctors, surgeons are amazing with scalpels. They can remove things that need to be removed and help you to move forward and be healthy. Um, but, but it requires that you slow down a little bit. It requires that you be careful. It requires that you make a plan. It requires that you think a little bit about that. So that's what we're going to do with this, with this particular passage, because I can assure you right now that this passage does not say that men have every right to just sit around all afternoon and their wives should make them sandwiches, okay? That is not what's going on in this passage, all right? 
And I also just want to say, before we get into it, that um, this, this passage is about marriage, but it is not just for married folks. Because at its core, this passage is about Christ and the church. It's about what Jesus has done, and it's about how we, as the church, follow him and submit to him in all things. And so the gospel is the message, the gospel is the point, and marriage is kind of the backdrop against which it is written. So let's get into this little tiny bit. There are two things that we need to understand about the letter to the Ephesians before we start making conclusions. So the first one is the context of the book of Ephesians. So Paul, um, and a famous apostle, if you don't know who he is, uh, read the book of Acts, starting especially around chapter 7, and you'll see some amazing stuff that, that happened with Paul. But he writes a, a letter to the church at Ephesus. And in Ephesus, we need to understand that there was a cult, and that cult was, uh, was, was made to worship the goddess Artemis. Um, Artemis was a big deal around Ephesus, and Artemis was believed to be the mother of all life, she was the source of nourishment to all creatures. She was the source of fertility. And so as a byproduct of that, on the other side of it, she was also the, uh, the, the, the reason why women would die in childbirth. Because if you ticked Artemis off, you would die during childbirth. And if you see someone who dies during childbirth, chances are they ticked Artemis off, or so they believed, okay? Which already, just knowing that little fact, if you know in the book of 1 Timothy, when, when Paul tells Timothy that women will be ch uh, saved in childbirth, that doesn't mean that like, yeah, well, you know, the only thing a woman's good for is barren children, right? That's not what it means. What it means is when you put your faith in Jesus, you don't have to worry. You don't have to be stressed out about the goddess Artemis being mad at you. You are going to be delivered. You're going to be saved. You are going to get through childbirth. It was a, it was a prescient promise for the people of that time. Okay, so the cult of Artemis believed, and I, I can't stress this enough, they believed in the superiority of women. Not just equality, like we try to think of it today. They, they believed that women were above men in society because Artemis, source of all life, then she created men, so men came second in the chronology of creation, but men also come second socially. To put it short, women are good, men are bad, right? That's kind of the, the backdrop that Paul was writing to. And I just want to pause here because as I was preparing for this and reading about Artemis and all that kind of stuff, it, something kind of jumped off the page at me. And you realize that a lot of the controversial things that Paul says about women, a lot of things that, that people like to take out of context and throw at you to say that the Bible is, you know, sexist or misogynistic or, or whatnot, they were written to a specific group of people, and that was the church in Ephesus, and, and they believed this kind of stuff. So when he says, you know, I, I do not suffer a woman to speak in church, or a woman uh, should, should learn quietly and submissively and all that kind of stuff, or in this case, wives should submit to their husbands, he's writing to a particular group of people who believed in the superiority of women. And what this is ultimately about is that there's not a superior gender, there is not an inferior gender, but there is God's created order and how that is supposed to go. There is what the Bible says to be true about the creation order. And so that's what it's about, okay? The next thing we need to understand about the book of Ephesians is the structure, the way it's kind of written out, okay? So if you, if you read Ephesians sometimes, you'll see that the first three chapters especially, there is so much accomplishment in the first three chapters. We read things like, um, like how Jesus' work and how he brought in those who were far off, how he has made the Gentiles 
fellow heirs of the promise of Christ in the gospel, how Jesus abolished the law of commandments given in ordinances, on and on and on down the line. Chapters 1 through 3 is just all the stuff that has already happened that Jesus has already done. Okay, so that provides the backdrop. And then in chapter 4, we see the very first two words of, of, of chapter 4 are I, therefore. Okay, and when you ever, whenever you see a therefore, you've probably heard this before, it's not an original thought. Um, when you see a therefore, you got to find out what the therefore is there for. Okay, and as we look at Ephesians 1 through 3, it's because of all these things that Jesus has already done. Okay, so the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, not just suggest, not just like, yeah, this is a good idea. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of of peace. Okay? That's the goal. The goal is, is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. As we read on in the book of Ephesians, you see things like how God gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And you don't equip somebody and then don't let them go do the job. Okay? Around, as we say around here, everyone gets to play. You are equipped for the work of ministry and you get to go do the work of ministry. He writes how we want to grow up into Christ. We want to reach maturity. How the goal is no longer to walk in the futility of the mind like the Gentiles did, but we want to put off the old self, which is corrupt. We want to put away falsehood. We want to be angry, but not sin. We want to not grieve the Holy Spirit. We want to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. We want to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead we want to expose them. So in short, the whole thing, the, the, the whole premise of Ephesians is we want to be different. As the people of God, we don't want to look like the way that we used to. Okay? And that is your backdrop for when Paul says, uh, wives submit to your husbands and hub, husbands love your wives. It is in the context of that greater thrust, that greater idea that Paul's trying to get across. And so this distinguishes the Christian institution of marriage from a worldly marriage that might be loveless or utilitarian. It, it, it distinguishes a Christian marriage from a contentious and hostile marriage where there has to be a clear winner and there has to be a clear loser. Ultimately, this, this model of marriage is part of Christian discipleship, of sanctification, and of being the people of God. Okay, so here's the deal. This, uh, this sermon series is called There I Said It. Um, and so we have been invited to, uh, to, to put forward our big statement, our big idea. And I want to put that forward first, and then we'll kind of reverse engineer and talk about how we get there. So here's the big idea. Husbands, you should be ready and willing to die for your wives, to lay down your lives for your wives. Wives, you shouldn't be the ones killing your husband. There, I said it, okay? Let's unpack that a little bit, okay? So the text begins with the wives, but I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the husband's side of things because we are so quick to say, wives, submit to your husbands, blah, 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 you know, all that kind of stuff, but we ignore how costly it really is 
the, the, the thing that Paul is, is, is telling the husbands to do. So let's look at this. In the marital structure that Paul puts forward to the Ephesians, husbands are considered the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. And husbands are told to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, so two main questions come out of that text, okay? The first question is this. What exactly does it mean to be the head? What does that mean? Okay, number one, it's a leadership role. Okay, it is a, it is a role of prominence. It is, a, it is a, a, a role of leadership. There's no way to get around that. The word that Paul uses, um, and I, I might screw up the pronunciation here, but it's a Greek word. It's, a, it's kephale, kephali, I think. Um, and that does imply lordship or mastery. Or interestingly, a cornerstone, right? And a cornerstone is a piece of a building that, that orients the rest of the building. You build the building around the cornerstone, and it is a support portion of the building. But also, this is going to blow your mind, okay? Head also means head, right? Like it, it means your actual, literal, physical head. And if you think about this, cast your minds back to the year 2018, if you will, um, back in those days, I was younger, and um, I looked forward to whatever Marvel Cinematic Universe movie or content was coming out. I don't look forward to it anymore, unfortunately, but, you know, that's neither here nor there, okay? At the end of, of Infinity War, right, um, Thor is coming down, and he's coming down in all his light and glory, and he throws Stormbreaker, and he gets Thanos right in the chest, right in the shoulder, Right, and it's that big moment. We all think maybe he's got him. We all think maybe they've won. And then we find out that he didn't get him. And what does Thanos say to Thor? But you should have gone for the head. Right? Why? Well, because if you kill the head, you kill the person. You kill the, the thing, right? The head houses the brain, and the brain uh, controls a lot of functions in the body. It controls the movements of limbs, and so if Thanos had no brain, then Thanos couldn't have snapped his finger, and they wouldn't have done all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, that completes this, this week's uh, MCU corner. But um, that's, that's what's going on. But here's the deal. The head does not dominate or subjugate the rest of the body. Okay, right now, my body is not up here saying like, oh, I really wish that my brain would let me do this, that, and the other. I really, really wish that I could do this or do that. No, they work together. The brain is sending signals, and, and my, the rest of my body is obeying it. But here's, here's the other thing. When my body suffers, my head suffers. Okay, if I work out too hard, if I, if I go outside and I'm working on projects or something like that, and I get sore, and I wake up the next day with a headache, Right? My head is feeling what my body has gone through. My head processes the pain that my body goes through. And so in the same way, husbands, you are going to process the pain that your wives go through because Christ, the head of the church, processed and took on the pain that you and I experience. And I think because the, because the husband is the head, I think that's why husbands come under attack. I really do. Because in this day and age, a husband is really inclined to, to, to want to be one of two things. You're either a doormat, and you just sit there and say, well, you know, i got to check with my wife on every single thing. Check with your wife. Seriously, please. It's a, it's a very good idea. Okay? But, like, you're either a doormat, and you get absolutely no say, and you just pretend that your wife runs the show, and you're just there to do whatever. Or you're, like, dominant, and you're a tyrant, and, and everything that, that happens has to be because you said so and whatnot. But that's not where a Christian marriage really is. 
Men are given a role of leadership, not tyrant, not dictator, not doormat, but leadership. Because of that, the second thing it means to be the head is that it's a responsibility. If the head can give life, the head can take life away. The manner of leadership will make or break an organization or a team, or in this case, a family and a marriage. It tends to be that the family goes the way that the man goes. It just does. Okay, that's not my opinion. That is like sociologically borne out. If you look at studies and statistics, you'll find out that a home where a father is present, even if he's not the best of leaders, even if he's not the greatest, even if he gets a lot of things wrong, a, a home where a father is present is less likely to produce children who experience poverty, who display behavioral problems, who become incarcerated, who abuse drugs and alcohol, who get pregnant as teenagers, etc., so on. There's all, it'll blow your mind. Just look up statistics on fatherhood in America. It is crazy. And then an, another older study found that when mom goes to church, but dad doesn't go to church, her kids have about a 1 in 50 chance of attending church regularly later, later in their lives. That's a 2% chance, okay? Now, if dad attends, even irregularly, even every so often, that number shoots up between 50 and 67%. It's crazy. So here's the deal. Men make a difference. They do. We were made to lead and to have an influence. So the question for us, the question that every man in this room or under the sound of my voice, whether online in a podcast later, what you have to reckon with is what kind of influence am I going to have? What kind of leader am I going to be? Will we influence our families as we neglect them, as we abuse them, demean them, talk down to them, patronize them? Will we influence our families as we hide behind our career and hide behind our hobbies and hide behind all the things we want to do? And we just say, well, I'm the head of the house, so I'm going to do this, that, and the other. Or will we understand that our role is a responsibility and our role is to give life and to support to provide, to help, to guide, to advise, to step up, to show up, and ultimately to shepherd our families toward Jesus. Husbands, when you read that you are the head of your wife, that is not a club to be wielded. That is a heavy, heavy responsibility. And you have to take it very, very seriously because you are a life giver, a foundation, and a support to your wife and the rest of your family. So what kind are you going to be? The second question that comes out of this text is, how did Christ love the church? Again, I just feel like we get so caught up in wives submit to your husbands, and, and we, we, we focus in on that, but we forget that this is a costly kind of love, and I'm willing to go this far. I wasn't willing in first service, but somebody talked to me after and said that I should, um, so I'm going to. I'm going to go so far as to say that Paul asks more of husbands than he does of wives. There, I said it, okay? Because, well, we'll get into it. This is how Jesus loves the church. Christ loved the church as he, number one, left the throne for her. Paul writes that Jesus emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. He gave his disciples power to go out and perform miracles and, and, and do things like that. Jesus gave his disciples room to operate, to try things, to fail, and to grow. And so, men, what that means for us is that we get off the throne. <laughs> we're not God. We're not kings. 
Our responsibility is to serve, and so we want to serve. Number two, Jesus loved the church by giving himself up willingly for her. Jesus said, importantly, that no one takes his life from him, but he laid it down willingly. When Peter tried to tell Jesus that he didn't need to die, he didn't need to sacrifice, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Sacrifice was part of the equation. It was part of the plan. It had to happen. And so here's, here's what it means for us as men. Men, take the initiative. Don't wait for your wife to be exhausted and exasperated and tired of what's going on and tired of doing all this stuff. Go and serve and love and give to your spouse. Number three, Jesus loved the church by interceding for her. The writer of Hebrews tells us that, that Jesus lives to this day, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. And so what that means, men, pray for your wives. Stick up for them. Honor them. Speak well of them. Advocate for them. Provide for their needs. Jesus' love for his church is thorough and it is provisional. There's a song we sing around here sometimes. We didn't do it this morning, but that's okay. I didn't ask for it. But um, one, of the, one of the lines in it is, you left no stone unturned. And I love that imagery because, because Jesus did not, did not leave anything out of what we needed. Anything and everything we need, Jesus Christ has provided. His love for his church is not slack, it's not scarce, and it's not hesitant. Jesus didn't put his feet up and say, well, you know, my job's done for today. I'm going to chill out. He continues to intercede and act on our behalf. His, his love for his church doesn't say that today you've made him angry or he's too tired today. He's been fixing and healing and helping other people. He, do, he doesn't have any time for you. No, that's not what Jesus is like. Jesus, in his love for us, shows up for us continually. He's done everything necessary to love us, and he will continue to do that. And so you and I have no reason whatsoever to believe that Jesus' love is ever going to dry up or end. And that is how husbands are called to love their wives. It's not easy love. It's costly love. It's bloody love. It's vulnerable love. That, that it leaves itself prone to be unreciprocated and unreturned. It just does. That's part of the equation. That's the reality. So let's shift gears. Let's talk about wives for a little bit. Okay, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So just like with the husband's role to love, what I love about this is that, is that there is a model for it. It's not just a vague command given like, you should figure this out, you should do it whatever way works for you, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Jesus is our model for how to love our wives. And then on the other hand, it says wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord or as the church submits to Christ. And so we have to ask, how does the church submit to Christ? But real quick, let's just define submission because I think there's some significance in, in the definition of that. Okay, The word used for submit or, or, yeah, submit, the, the verb, it's actually a, a military term from that time. And the, the connotation of that word is that you arrange yourself under a leader or under a commander. Okay? Think critically about that for just a second. Okay? 
You don't go into battle if you're not united with your commander. Your commander needs you. Your commander needs you to do your job. You need your commander to do his job, their job, you know, and all that kind of stuff. It is important. The mission is the same. And in Christian marriage, the mission is to be the same. Okay, so how does the church submit to Christ? Well, first, the church submits out of love from Christ. Paul writes to the Corinthian church as he describes his ministry. He says, the love of Christ controls or compels, depending on the translation you look at, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he dies for all, that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The church begins, the first thing that the church does is looks at the love that Jesus showed for us. That's the inspiration. That's the fountain of everything. I love what we sang this morning. It said, when nothing else could help, your love came down. When nothing else could help. Not when I asked for it. Not when I deserved it. Not when I earned it. Not when I put in a request for it. When nothing else could help. When I, when I didn't even know it. When I was still an enemy of God, his love came down and was there to rescue me. Jesus' love is initiating. It takes the first step. And so wives, you operate out of the safety of a covenant. A covenant made between you and your spouse before God. Your, your husband promised to love you, and so you can trust him the way that we as the church trust Christ. The second thing is that the church submits out of love for Christ. Jesus told his disciples, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He didn't say do my commandments because I commanded them. He doesn't say do my commandments because I'm the boss and I know best and I said so. Do my commandments if you love me. That's an invitation, friends. That is an invitation. God's way is good for us. It is, it is life to us, a lamp for our feet and a light into our path. But your arm as a Christian will never be twisted into obedience. It is a choice that you and I get to make. And so wives... Love for your husband should inform your submission. It's not something you do because like he said so and blah, 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 blah. The same way that you follow Jesus and you obey Jesus willingly, that is how this is supposed to be done. And then finally, the church submits out of union with Christ. Jesus told his disciples, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Jesus brings us in to the things that he's doing. And this is part of the wonder and the absolute mystery of marriage. That just as Jesus Christ and his church are unified, a husband and wife become one. You abide in Christ. Christ abides in you. Husbands and wives are made one flesh. Plans and decisions are made together. Pain and grief are felt together. Life is lived together. That's the beauty of it. And we are invited to be with Jesus. We are invited on the mission that Jesus is on. And here's the thing. As his church, we don't fight against Jesus. As his church, we do not continue in sin that grace may abound. As his church, we do not, as the writer of Hebrews said, crucify him again. In other words, as the church submits to Christ, the goal is obedience and surrender to a tender, and gentle, yet somehow fiercely 
faithful and fervent love. So let me repeat the earlier statement. Husbands, you should be ready and willing to die for your wives, to lay your life down for her. But wives, you should not be killing your husbands. (laughs) That's kind of how it works. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church by giving himself up for her, by getting off the throne, by washing her feet, by equipping and empowering, by praying, by teaching, by leading, by inviting, by cleansing her, by the washing of water with the word that he might present himself a church in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Did you ever think about the fact that, husbands, your goal for your wife is her holiness. Your goal for your, for your wife, your spouse, is her holiness. That is the way that Christ loved the church, and that is the way that we are invited to love our wives. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ loved the church, because we are members of his body. That's Paul speaking, not me. Husbands, love your wives. Lay your life down for her because this is your covenantal duty. But wives, this text is just asking you not to domineer your husband. It's asking you not to just run roughshod over a gentle and Christ-like love. It's asking you to work together to show respect, to speak well of, and to honor your spouse. At its best, at its perfect, most optimal level of function, In its most God-ordained and God-blessed form, marriage reflects the union between God the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, different in personality, different in role, but absolutely united in will. It also reflects the union of Christ and the church, the union of two persons, man, woman, different, complementary, on the same mission, going the same direction. Marriage is meant to display a tender, gentle, thorough, and sacrificial love, a love that perseveres, that forbears, that forgives, that is patient. Love that's kind, that's not boastful, that rejoices in the truth, because that is how Jesus Christ loves you. But marriage is also meant to display a respectful submission, not an attempt to rule each other, not an attempt to call the shots, not an attempt to win at the end of the day, but a union. Because that is how the church submits to Christ. And that's what we have in front of us. So here's the deal. I want to invite you to go ahead and stand to your feet. Um, These people are up here to pray for you. If there's anything going on, anything in your life, anything in your world, anything in your marriage that you need prayer for, it doesn't have to be about this. It really doesn't. But these folks are up here because they want to pray with you. They want to pray for you. But here is the last thing that I have to say. Because in my head, it's it's the elephant in the room. What if you don't? What if they don't? What if you're a wife and you're submitting to your husband, you're respecting him and, and whatnot, but he's not leading gently. He's not loving gently. He's not loving the way that Christ loved the church. Or what if you're a husband doing your absolute best and you're gentle and you're tender and you're kind and you're faithful and yet your wife keeps trying to undermine you and demean you and, and disrespect you and all that kind of stuff. I'm just going to be real with you. That's the deep vulnerability within this passage. It's the thing that I was like, "Ah, is this the direction I want to go? But yeah, we got to go there because we have to talk about it. Here's the deal. You can't change their heart, but you can pray. 
You can seek to understand. You can aim to communicate. You can seek counsel. And you can seek help. I am of the mind that God will vindicate you. I really am. We live in a broken and sin-infected and sin-infested world. And as a consequence of that, we let each other down. That's why marriage is a, is a shadow. It's a representation of the union between Christ and his church. But it's not a perfect one. Because we'll let each other down. We'll fail. We'll mess up. This thing works amazingly when it's done right, when it's done together. And it can hurt a lot when it's not. This is the one thing I want to tell you. And as much as I wish that it was going to be the balm for your heart and and you would never, ever need to hear anything ever again, you probably will, and that's okay. But this is what I want to encourage you in. You may not have a perfect spouse, but you do have a perfect Savior. He intercedes for you, he fights for you, he cares for you, and he loves you. That's the reality of it. All right, let's go before the Lord in prayer before we sing this last song today. Father, as we come before you, I want to thank you for your presence in this room. I want to thank you for your presence in Central Kentucky, for the things that you are up to. And God, I want to thank you that you don't just give us this command vaguely, but you give us a model. God, I want to thank you that as a husband, I can look to Jesus who loved perfectly, who loved selflessly, who laid his life down for his enemies. I want to thank you, Jesus, that you came even when we had done nothing to deserve it, even when we hadn't even asked you for help, you came because you knew that it's what we needed. And I want to thank you for that. And Father, for the husbands in the room, I just want to ask that you would be changing our hearts, that you would orient our hearts to you, that you would help us to love gently, that you would help us to love tenderly, that you would help us to love faithfully the way that Jesus did. God, for the wives in the room, I pray for wisdom. I pray that they would see the way that the church submits to Christ, and I pray that they would be able to honor their husbands in the same way that we as your church want to honor you. But Father, I'm also aware that that not everybody in here is married. And so God, we come before you. We want to thank you for the way that you love us. We want to thank you, Jesus, for your sacrificial love poured out on our behalf, finished at the cross. But you in your mercy continue and you continue to pray for us. You continue to intercede for us. You continue to act on our behalf. And we want to say thank you. And we want to say, God, as your church, We want to submit to you. We want to be on the same page as you. We want to be on the same mission as you. So God, make us aware of our union with Christ. Make us aware of our identity in Christ. That you love us, that you're not mad at us, that you want to use us, that you want to empower us. Even when we feel weak, even when we feel unlovable, that you give us strength and you love us anyway. God, set your church on fire to go into the world to make disciples, to preach the gospel, and to see the kingdom of God come to bear in our state, in our community, in our nation, and in our world, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.